Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is me. I am gloriously alone, as we all are. Um, there will be no one to to disagree or agree with. Uh, and and it, it's just me. You're getting the unadulterated Dear Prudence experience uh, in this week's podcast. So uh, if that works for you, great. Enjoy. Uh, and if it doesn't, just wait a week and you'll get someone else. Friends, I have a confession to make. I've been remiss every week that I record this show. I tell you all to call a phone number and leave a voicemail and that you might hear your voice on an episode of the show. And I haven't been playing your voicemails. I get so many letters. I've been dipping back into the mailbag and reading the letters and, and preferring the written word over the spoken word. Uh, and, and no longer. It ends today. We're going to open the show with a damn voicemail. Because I've promised you that I would answer your voicemails, and then I failed. I failed to execute. I failed to deliver. I've overpromised and I've underdelivered, which is the one thing my mother always told me never to do. It stops now. It stops today. We're going to take a voicemail. Hi. I'm a mature woman in a good, supportive, long-term relationship. 35 years or so ago, I was molested on separate occasions by two close male relatives. The incidents were fairly minor. And I've pretty much resolved any trauma related to them, but I continue to have issues with setting and enforcing limits with men that I know, however casually, who offer unwanted sexual advances. Now, I'm in therapy to deal with those issues because they still continue. Um, recently, as my relationship with my boyfriend has progressed, we've shared some of our closeted skeletons, and he's become concerned. We enjoy a rich fantasy life, and we engage in role play from time to time. The issue is my favorite fantasies involve themes of intimidation, blackmail, humiliation, and other forms of non-consent. Now, I'm aware that there are parallels to my past, and I accept that there may be some connection, but it doesn't bother me, and I enjoy my fantasy life without shame. My boyfriend's concern, though, 
that our sex play contributes to the issues that I continue to struggle with. I recognize his concern, and it may be valid, but I would rather not give up my most exciting and satisfying fantasy themes if it's not really necessary. My therapy sessions are in a group setting, so I'm not really comfortable talking about my sex life there. So I'm calling to see what you think. Do you think that it's safe for me to continue to enjoy my kinks guilt-free? Oh, man. One of the uh, kind of great things about being a human being in the world um, is that if you feel that you are not being traumatized by something, if if you've sort of checked in with yourself, if you are doing an accurate self-reflection and um, you feel comfortable with a particular activity, you do not feel re-traumatized. It does not remind you of a time in your life where you experienced uh, violence or assault. Um, then you are actually the final authority on whether or not you are being traumatized. Um, you're, you're a grown woman. You've been in therapy for a long time. Um, it sounds like for you, it's very clear that the consensual acts you engage in with your boyfriend um, are in no way connected to trauma you experienced as a young woman. Um, and it's not connected to the ways in which you set boundaries with strangers or male acquaintances who try to hit on you. Um, they're, they're not connected in any way. Um, and, and I think that it sounds like you've thought about this pretty clearly. You sound very confident. You sound very comfortable. Um, I certainly understand your boyfriend's concerns if he fears that he could be in some way contributing to something that's painful or difficult for you. Um, but I think that he should take you at your word. And, and you can say to him, you know, boyfriend, I love you. I appreciate your concern. Um, I'm aware that it's sometimes difficult for me to turn down men when they hit on me. Um, that's something that I'm continuing to work on. Um, it's also very clear to me that that's totally not connected to the way that I relate to you, my long-term boyfriend, who I trust, who I'm committed to, who I feel safe with, um, who I'm comfortable sharing my fantasies with. Um, these two things are not connected. Um, I feel certain about that. So, like, put your mind at ease. Now, if your boyfriend is just in general experiencing his own discomfort or occasionally wants to slow things down um, or just says, hey, I feel uncomfortable with this, that's fine. And and I hope you can encourage him to, to say that. It, it may be just that he occasionally wants to check in. Um, it may be that he just occasionally experiences the sense of guilt that can sometimes come from, like, big over-the-top sexual fantasies where you just sort of think, oh, whoa, uh, I want to do a little reality check here and make sure that this is not any sort of, like, actual desire I have to cause anybody else harm. No? Great. Good. Back in. Um, the only other thing that I, I would suggest is um, if, if you think it would be helpful, uh, if you would like to pursue individualized therapy, even just for a couple of sessions um, with someone that you did feel comfortable talking about your sex life with, especially for a therapist who is like uh, accepting of stuff like BDSM, of role playing, a fantasy of kink, whatever, um, then you might find that helpful. Like, it, you know, if you're already going to all the trouble and expense of going to therapy, I think you might as well find a therapeutic experience where you feel comfortable talking about everything um, because it sounds like this isn't that you're giving a lot of thought to and you really want to make sure that you do a good job of handling. Um, so I would certainly encourage you to consider that. But no, uh, people who have experienced trauma sometimes like pretty intense fantasy and role-playing stuff in their sex lives. Uh, people who have not experienced trauma also sometimes enjoy those things. Um, 
there certainly can be connections in terms of things that you've experienced and things that you enjoy uh, in the bedroom. And that can absolutely play out in various ways, some healthier than others. Um, but just because uh, somebody violated your uh, your boundaries, your body, your consent in the past uh, does not mean that you are incapable now of choosing um, to engage in kink that like brings you joy and delight um, without feeling like, oh, it's because somebody hurt me once in the past. And that's why I like this. And it's not okay. And the more that I do it, the harder it will be for me to turn down other men who hit on me. Like, if you think about it, that doesn't really make any sense. It's like saying, if I have sex that I enjoy with my boyfriend in the way that I want to have sex, I will somehow be unable to say no to men I don't want to have sex with. Like, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. Like, one would not cause the other. Those are two separate areas of your life. Um, And it sounds like when it comes to your sex life with your boyfriend, you're confident, you're comfortable, you know you are in mind, and you can state your needs. And it sounds like when it comes to getting hit on by men you don't know very well, um, it's trickier for you to say no and to draw a boundary and to feel comfortable speaking up. Um, And if that's something that you need more support in uh, from a therapist or from your, you know, the other people in your life, like, absolutely, like, ask for that. Like, try to cultivate a stronger sense of it's okay for me to say no. I don't have to worry about this other guy's feelings or offending him. Um, But those two things are are totally unrelated, um, except for the fact that they both affect you in your life. Um, and, and you should be able to let your boyfriend know he should not worry uh, that he is making it more difficult for you to set boundaries with other people um, just because you guys are having fun, delightful, playful sex together. Um, so yeah, enjoy, enjoy all that uh, fake blackmail with a clear conscience. Have a great time. This next letter is one I've never gotten before, and I'm very excited about it. It's called Redhead Conundrum. Dear Prudence, I'm the proud mother of two little girls. My oldest is four and has brown hair and hazel eyes, just like me. My youngest, who's almost three, hit the recessive gene jackpot and has very pretty red hair and blue eyes. Ever since she was born, we've noticed that strangers stop, comment, and admire her on a regular basis. This has ranged from getting comments like, you know, redheads are an endangered species— to one time that we were at a buffet and a busload of tourists started taking pictures of her and trying to hold her. This actually happened. During these incidents, strangers completely ignore my other daughter or give her a token compliment after gushing over my youngest. How can I politely discourage these comments in public? I don't want either of my girls growing up with added pressure over their looks or to have a sibling rivalry get started over this. As my youngest child's gotten older, I've expected these comments to stop, but they haven't yet. Please tell me they will. Oh, letter writer, I would love to tell you that as your children get older, strangers will stop commenting on their appearance. But if there is one thing that I have learned from this column, and also life, it is that there is nothing people love more than commenting on strangers' appearances, especially girls. Um, People seem to act like it is a game, and they will get points for the more strangers' looks that they comment on. Uh, I'm not quite sure if that's actually the case, but people sure seem to love it. Um, Unfortunately, I I think if if this has been the theme thus far, um, there's a real chance that your kids, both of them, are going to encounter a lot of weird comments from strangers for a very long time about what they look like. And that sucks. And I'm sorry. Um, But I, I don't know that it's likely to stop anytime soon, nor do I think that there's like an effective way to prevent people from doing that other than just like going full Rapunzel and keeping your kids in a tower. Um, So I I don't think that you can kind of hope that people will stop commenting on your kid's appearance, especially if one of them has like unusual hair. 
Um, but you can at least like model really clearly to them um, that you think they both, you know, like to treat them both a little bit differently, right? Like, so your daughter who's getting all the comments about her appearance to make it clear that uh, she is more than her appearance, that you value her for other things. So to point out ways in which she has like talents that have nothing to do with the way that like keratin strands grow out of the top of her head. Um, and then with your other daughter, I mean, that's great as well. All your children should feel like you value them for reasons other than like their, the way their faces are arranged. Um, but to also let her know, too, that like she is like charming to look at and that you like her hair or her eyes, like just so that she's not getting this constant feedback from the world that her looks are forgettable and her sister's gorgeous. Um, so to kind of balance that with both your kids and just to always like kind of hold lightly uh, the fact that uh, they are more than just what they look like. Um and if it's helpful to you, um, like if your kids are ever asking, like, why are strangers always doing this? You know, you can say, oh, well, red hair is kind of unusual. So sometimes when people haven't seen it in a while, uh, they act really surprised. And it's really not that big a deal. So to just kind of make it clear, like you're not a special, magical, endangered person. That whole redheads are endangered is pretty mythical and also sort of ridiculous. Um, yeah, but but to make it clear that you are not buying into this as well is helpful. Um, but that's rough. That's really rough when, like, the world is making it clear from a super young age. Like, one of you has an appearance that is going to get noticed and talked about and praised a lot. Um, and your kids are going to notice that. And I think the the one thing you shouldn't do is try to ignore it or pretend that it's not going on because then your kids are going to feel like, oh, man, not only is there this weird dynamic that we experience whenever we go out in the world. Moms made it really clear that we're not allowed to discuss it and we have to pretend it doesn't exist. Um, so I think acknowledge it. Acknowledge that sometimes people have an interesting response to her red hair. You know, feel free to say, like, if a stranger's really, like, making a meal out of how red your daughter's hair is, you can just say, yeah, you know, we we try to, to talk about stuff other than just their appearance. Uh, but thank you very much for your comment. Um, and just, like, briskly acknowledge that they have said something and move on. Like, you don't have to stay and have a long conversation. Um, you don't have to let them gush. You can always say, like, excuse us, we have to go. Um, yeah, yeah. You do not have to be on, like, the redhead parade wherever you go. Um, but, yeah, I, I, hopefully if, if you, the parent, are not fostering this dynamic at home, I think the odds of their, like, developing a horrible sibling rivalry is probably lessened. Um, although, again, you know, there's always going to be something. If you have kids, one is always going to have something the other doesn't, and and there will always be an opportunity for some form of resentment. Um, that's just part of the nature of having a sibling. And the most I think that you can do um, is to try to make sure that they both feel valued and appreciated and loved, um, and also to remind them that like they're siblings and they have a special relationship and they should be able to lean on one another, um, even if all they do for the next 10 years is fight over Legos. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This next letter, the subject of this is just toxic friend. And it's just reminded me that 
The word toxic is such a fascinating one, and I find that the ways in which we use it are so interesting because sometimes I think it means just generally bad. Like it's just a catch-all term for anything we don't like, and sometimes I feel like it's it's trying to say abusive but but not using that word. And other times I have no idea what people mean when they use the word toxic. Uh, I don't have any sort of like grand thesis about this word or what it does or doesn't mean. Uh, I've just noticed it, and it pops up a lot in this next letter. Uh, so uh, let's let's go ahead and dive in. Dear Prudence, I'm one half of a lesbian married couple. My wife has an extremely toxic friend who causes me lots of anxiety. I introduced them to one another, but I'm regretting this now. My wife and this friend were involved in an emotional affair six months ago. I forgave my wife, but recently this toxic friend manipulated a series of photos to make me believe that she was sleeping with my wife. This toxic friend knows exactly how to prey upon my anxiety and insecurity. My wife says I'm controlling her when I say that this friendship is unhealthy and that she should end it. What should I do? Well, I man, after after all that intro, I think you've used the word toxic fairly accurately. This person sounds like someone who does not wish for you to be well and is actively impeding your emotional stability, um, which is probably as good a definition of toxic as any. Um, and and I think your wife might actually uh, fall into that category too. Um, I'm trying to imagine a situation where someone I had just had an affair with like photoshopped a bunch of pictures to make it look like we were having sex. And then my wife saw this and said, you know, I don't like this person. I really wish you would stop being friends with them. And my response was just, you're being controlling. Um, No, you are not being controlling. Um, This is an outrageous situation. Uh, Your wife cheated on you. Um, And generally, you know, if you are not in an open relationship, if you are in a monogamous relationship and someone cheats uh, and then you two talk about it and you decide to stay together and work through this, uh, generally, uh, part of what that means is uh, minimal contact with the person they cheated with because that just happened. You know, that was the person they betrayed the vows you made to one another with. And as such, uh, it's not a relationship that's going to be able to continue and be healthy and respectful and appropriate. Um that you know, sometimes it's not possible to like pretend that person has died, but you certainly would not go around like taking a bunch of pictures together, going ice skating, hanging out, you know, texting your partner like, "Hey, isn't this picture funny? It looks like we were doing it." Um, no, like that's that's not okay. So if you and your wife like decided to try to stay together after she cheated on you, um, and she's still hanging out with this woman, like it is really okay for you to say, "Hey, in order for me to trust you, and in order to feel like you're committed to this marriage and that we can rebuild after this betrayal, like." I, I, I need you to not see this person. Um, I, I don't recommend giving ultimatums a lot, but sometimes that's the only option you have. And if she says, nope, this woman's staying in my life, even after she and I have had this intense emotional affair, and now she's also, like, trying to upset you by sending you, like, doctored photographs of the two of us being intimate together, like, nope, you're controlling, this is fine, this is normal, like, that's... Uh, that's horrible. That's really horrible. And and this this is a really firm line you got to draw. Like, uh, you, you got to tell this person like, hey, due to the fact that you had an emotional affair with my wife and then sent me a bunch of pictures designed to make me think you guys were sleeping together, our friendship is now over. We're no longer friends. That's a very quick conversation. Um, and then you get to say to your wife, like, I can't have this person in my life. Um if if you are committed to me, if you want to try to rebuild um, and, and you will agree to no longer see this person, like we can go to therapy. We can talk about what can we can do differently. I can work on forgiving you. Um, but if you want to keep her in your life, 
uh, you will not be able to stay married to me. Because, like, what's next? She's going to start sending you, like, scrapbooks of their vacations together and, like, making you think the two of them have bought a dog together? Like, this is a very, very upsetting disturbing, distressing person um, who does not want your marriage to work out. This woman does not want you to be happy. She does not want you to feel comfortable. She wants you to feel threatened and vulnerable and like your wife is cheating on you, which is, you know, exactly what's been going on. Um, And if your wife doesn't see that that's horrible, unethical, unkind, cruel behavior, uh, then I think you should leave your wife. I feel bad. I feel like every week I tell somebody else to leave their wife. But there are some things that are just worth leaving your wife over. And if your wife says, yeah, I had an emotional affair a couple of months ago with a good friend that you introduced me to, and now they're sending you, like, tormenting pictures that make you think that I'm sleeping with them too, but you just need to get over it and you can't control me, then that's a person worth leaving. That is a person that it is not worth being married to. Um, and and so I think, I think you got to draw that line and make that ultimatum. And my guess is she will not choose you over the friend. My guess is she will say, well, you're being unreasonable. You're trying to control me. You're the bad guy here. And that's just going to have to be how it is. And you're going to get to say goodbye and go be alone for a while and cry and call your friends who don't do these horrible things to you and lean on them and um, find a find a partner who will not do those things to you because that is just that's horrible. I mean, that's like something that like if a 16-year-old was doing to like a person they didn't like in school, that would be like pathologically upsetting behavior. The idea that an adult is doing this, somebody who's calling themselves your friend. Um, no, they're not your friend. They're jerks. All right. Back on the subject of sisters, this time adults. The subject of this one is Rachel and Leah, which I'm now realizing we probably shouldn't air because it's a reference to two stories uh, of sisters from the Bible. And if you're not familiar uh, with this particular story, This name makes no sense. Uh, But let's leave it in. Why not? Uh, If you are familiar with the biblical story of Rachel and Leah, it will provide rich additional uh, context for you. And if you're not, you can still enjoy this letter. Dear Prudence, Late last year, I discovered, to my dismay, that I was pregnant with a second child. After a lot of discussion, my husband and I decided against an abortion. But while he's now excited about adding to our family, I can't muster many warm feelings about the prospect of another child. Worse, when I called my sister to tell her the news, she revealed that she's been trying to get pregnant since she got married a few years ago and has had multiple miscarriages in the interim. My father's been having serious health issues lately, and he's been hospitalized four times since Christmas, so my sister has been in town frequently and we've had more direct contact than usual. I've tried to avoid talking about either my pregnancy or my mixed feelings about it when she's around, but I can tell that she's hurting and resentful, and I don't know how to make it better. Under the circumstances, I simply can't stay out of her way. Any thoughts? I think I just want to start by saying I'm so sorry. Like, this is just a triple whammy, um, and it sounds like everyone in your family is going through a really difficult time. And and I hope if nothing else, you can extend uh, to yourself and to your sister and to everyone else around you a lot of grace, um, because you guys are all under uh, a lot of stress right now. Um, and I hope you're also taking good care of yourself. Man, I I want to take you at your word. And when you say that you don't have a lot of warm feelings about the prospect of another child, that you've got mixed feelings about it, um, I do want to take you at your word when you say that you've decided you don't want to have an abortion. So I'm not going to try to say that you should reconsider that if you've already ruled that out. Um, I hope that you can at least talk about the possibility of giving this child up for adoption. If there is a part of you that feels like I could not be a good mother to a second child, I can't do this. My husband wants to, but I don't. So I'm just going to suck it up and pretend to be okay with it because it would make him happy. Like, 
Um, I, you know, mixed feelings can mean something different for different people. Maybe for you, it just means this will take a while, but ultimately this is the choice that I want to make. Or it might feel like I just can't do this, but I don't know how to say no. I just want to point out there are options in between abortion and having this child and raising her as your own, him or her as your own. Um, so at least feel like you can bring that up if not to your husband, to a therapist, to a trusted friend, like you are allowed to consider your other options. Um, And if you need to choose something else that you can, that you are not just like painted into a corner here, um, I think can be really helpful. Even if you do ultimately decide mixed feelings or not, I am going to keep this child and I I will be a mother. Um, If you just even have a little while where you say, okay, but I could place this child up for adoption if I had to, if I needed to. Um, Just to know that you have that option, to know that you're not trapped can make a big difference in terms of like feeling peace with the decision that you're making. So that's just the pitch for for considering carefully all the choices that are in front of you. Um, And then putting that aside, assuming you're going to go forward with this pregnancy, but you're not yet at a place where you feel a lot of joy. Um, It's not really feeling feeling exciting, Um, you know. What do you do? How do you talk about it sensitively with your sister? Um, sometimes I'll get letters from somebody who has suffered some miscarriages, and it's very sad, but they'll they'll really go out of their way to make other people who are pregnant or who are having children guilty as if they've done something wrong. And I, I don't think that that's an appropriate response to grief, even though even though I understand that having a miscarriage is, is traumatic and, and painful and, and deeply sad. Um, but it doesn't quite sound like that's what your sister's doing. So I think that's one good thing to kind of check off. Like, she's not trying to... Um, hurt you. She's not blaming you for the pain that she's going through. She's just going through a really rough time. So kind of keeping in that, like keeping in the back of your mind, the sense of like, she's not being malicious. She's not trying to be controlling. She's just in pain. Um, And I'm in pain too. And these are really different kinds of pain. So like just acknowledging that like, you guys will not be able to be one another's primary um, uh, emotional support during these journeys. And I think Sometimes it might feel like, okay, miscarriage is so sad and and not really something that we talk about. So the best thing I can do is just not mention it. Um, And depending on your relationship with your sister, I think that might actually not be the right route to take. I think it, it might feel really helpful if you could just acknowledge like, hey, sister, I'm so sorry about your miscarriages. And I just want to acknowledge that it's really complicated that I'm pregnant right now. And I don't want to talk about it in a way that makes you feel more pain or like we can't connect. And I just want to acknowledge that this is like uncomfortable and awkward and painful and sad. And I love you so much. And I really want good things for you in your life. And I'm also really sad that our dad is so sick. Um, And that's not a conversation that has like a goal exactly. You're not asking her to do or say anything. You're not promising to do or say anything or to avoid certain topics. Um, I think it can just help to name a dynamic and to say like to reaffirm your love for her, your commitment to her, um, and the fact that like this is not a situation either one of you would like to be in. Um, And that might just be helpful in terms of like future conversations. If it doesn't feel like this is a topic that's off limits, uh, the best thing either of us can do is never discuss pregnancy or miscarriage in any way. Um, If you think she would be receptive to just naming this dynamic, I think you should do that. Um, And then that way, even if you guys don't end up having lots and lots of conversations about your pregnancy, like you might share your mixed feelings about raising a child with other friends or other relatives or other people that you know well. Um, but but at least to be able to say to your sister, like, this is hard for me. Um, I, I'm going through a difficult time. I love you. I recognize we won't be able to share all of all our thoughts and feelings about our respective situations right now. But I just need you to know, like, your loves and I grieve with you. Um, and, and I think that'll go a long way towards feeling like, okay, I've named it with her. 
I don't have to like talk it through with her every step of the way right now. Um, but at least we're not dancing around it. Uh, we're not ignoring it. We're not pretending that it didn't happen. Um, and I think that that you'll find that relieves some of the intense pressure uh, that you're under. And you can also say like, hey, maybe right now, over the next couple of weeks, um, let's, you know, we, we, we're not going to talk about this every time we see each other. Um, we can like take a little space, we can take a little truce, but we're not avoiding it. We're not pretending it's not there. We're, we're naming it first and then saying, let's take a little time. Let's take a little space and deal with your father and deal with everything else that's going on. And then maybe later you guys can revisit that conversation. And, um, you know, when you do talk about it, just give each other equal space. Like you can talk about your fears, your anxieties, what scares you, uh, and what's hard about your situation. And, and then she can do the same for hers. And you can both acknowledge that like, just because they're sort of mirror images of, of one another's problems, it doesn't mean one's worse than the other. Like they're both really hard, painful situations. And, um, yeah, if nothing else, I just hope that like, if either of you doesn't say something perfectly or maybe speaks without thinking or says something a little hurtful and then later apologizes, just remember you're doing your best with like a really painful situation, um, and to give each other a lot of space and good luck. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Subject line of this one is just enough with the politics talk at work. Dear Prudence, I work in a field that is overwhelmingly politically liberal, which is generally fine because I'm liberal too. So naturally, since the election, there's been a lot of anti-Trump talk. But it's getting excessive, and it's starting to take up hours of people's time at work. I'm also afraid of the current situation, but I don't think that politics belong in a non-political workplace, even if most of us agree with one another. Mostly, I'm just sick of being bombarded with it. I try to put on headphones, but people tap me on the shoulder so that they can talk politics. Not producing work is not going to help anything. How do I tell these certainly well-meaning coworkers to stop talking so much about politics at work, or at least to stop talking about them so much to me? Oh, man. There's a scene in the movie Bambi where the forest is on fire and there's this really stressed out quail. I think it's a quail. It might be a pheasant. And she just can't stop chattering about how she's got to fly because there's like also hunters nearby. Everything's on fire. There's people with guns nearby. She's incredibly terrified. And she just keeps stressing out and keeps stressing out and keeps stressing out uh, and then like makes a run for it and dies. Uh, It's a very upsetting scene. It's a very upsetting movie. Um, I don't mean to suggest that everything is presently on fire, but uh, there are some people who when they are in a, a feeling of stress, their sort of response is just panic and nonstop talking um, in a way that pretty quickly becomes really counterproductive um, and in a way that becomes really distracting and distressing to the people around them. Um, and I don't I don't think you're like overreacting. I think that, yes, absolutely. Like at work, especially a non-political workplace, um, it is not unreasonable to say like, hey, the majority of the workday should not be given over to discussing politics. It should be given over to getting work done. Um, and so to that end, uh, you know, I don't know how far you would get uh, trying to set the tone for everyone else, but luckily, like, you absolutely uh, will never get in trouble with your boss if you are saying to people, like, hey, guys, I actually don't have time to discuss this right now. I've got to finish this project. Like, you just get to start saying that 
all the time. If someone taps you on the shoulder and says, I need to tell you this terrible thing that just happened, um, they actually don't need to tell you right now. Like terrible stuff's happening every five minutes. Um, Everybody needs to figure out the amount to which they are able to catch up with all of it and and what they want to do about it. And when they also want to live their lives and do their jobs and get paid um, because you still have to put food on the table and you still have to pay your bills. Um, So you just get to keep saying, I don't have time to discuss this right now. I've got to get back to work. Um, and that's it. Uh, you know, if they're able to do this for hours a day and get their work done, like more power to them, that's incredible. Um, it's likely that at some point, uh, it will be made clear to them that they're going to have to spend a little more time doing work by their own bosses. Um, and hopefully like at that point, um, they will, uh, vanish and, and, and get back to their desks. But in the meantime, um, yeah, put those headphones back on, say, sorry, I don't have time for this. I've got to finish this. Um, and and let them let them do their thing. Uh, that it, you do not have to sit around and listen to it. Um, you also don't have to be responsible for getting everyone else to stop. Um, although I certainly understand your frustration, and if you have a good relationship with your boss, you can absolutely say like, "Hey, I don't want to like uh, force everyone to stop talking about current events, but it is getting overwhelming, and I'm wondering if we can like try to confine it to the break room or just remind everybody that." Um, like, we are here to to do our jobs for the most part. Um, that's a, a super appropriate thing to say to your boss. Like, yeah, absolutely. Like, I understand where your coworkers are coming from as well. But um, there's a, a time and a place to do stuff. And generally, most of your time at work should probably be spent working. Not all of it. We're not robots. Sometimes you need to talk about things you're afraid of. But um, you shouldn't be standing in front of other people's desks talking for three hours of the day um, about uh, current events. You should be you should be getting your job done. So, yep, hold your ground. Don't freak out uh, or freak out on your own time. Freak out quietly in a broom closet if you have to. Everyone freaks out once in a while. Um, but yeah, just let them know. Guys, I'm right there with you. Freaks me out too. Still have to finish the spreadsheet. Um, and they will they will understand and hopefully be chastened to get back to work themselves. All right, friends, that uh, that's it for me. That's it for me and my guest myself. Uh, I hope that you managed to enjoy hearing uh, advice given by a single person rather than two. And if you didn't, don't worry about it. Next week, we've got somebody back in the studio uh, and you won't have to listen to this ever again. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and it helps more people find the show. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. 
Well, we did, to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.